Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Asher Marketing Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Asher Agency, a full-service marketing agency with offices in Indiana, West Virginia, and Washington, D.C. For nearly 50 years, Asher has helped our clients tell their stories, reach customers and prospects, and stand out from the crowd. To learn more about how we can help your company, visit asheragency.com or contact us at hello at asheragency.com. My guest on the Asher Marketing Podcast is Jason Parsons. Jason, how you doing? I'm well, thank you, Anthony. How are you? I'm great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I understand that we have Mike Fulton in common. We both know Mike. How do you know Mike? <laughs> oh, boy. I've known Mike for probably 15 years okay. um, now from West Virginia. So I'm a graduate of West Virginia University and yeah. as is Mike and a native West Virginian. So, And Mike is a world-class connector of people. So I uh, had met him back when I was a student in college and we've remained friends since. Yeah, I think anybody who has any association with the University of West Virginia has a connection to Mike Fulton. And you're right, he's sent a lot of great guests our way. So I appreciate you taking the offer that Mike put out there. Well, um, I want to start, Jason, by talking a little bit about your career path. And you've taken some interesting turns in your career. What I'd like to hear about is when did you start thinking about what you might want to do in terms of a career? What path did you follow? And then what stops did you make along the way? And what were some of the twists and turns that you took? Well, that's a great question. And, and I have had, and one of the things I've learned as I've gotten further in my career is it's often a meandering path. And I think that one thing, if I could go back in time and think about myself as a college student, and, you know, I was a very active student in college. I was the student body president. I spent more time doing things outside of the classroom than in the classroom. And so I um, started not to think about it in the normal sense that a lot of people do. I was living in the moment and having a good time and, and doing some great things as a student. And there was a point in time when I thought I wanted to go into politics. And I think that was in, in part because I love po public policy and government. And, you know, the the work I'd done in student government at my university was a natural segue into that. And but, it you know, as often life, you know, turns out it, it, it sort of took on a different path. And I would say first that the initial foray into where I am now began in response to the 2010 coal mine explosion in southern West Virginia, uh, near where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And because I was at the university, I wanted to do something to to try and be responsive and, and try and help. So we marshaled some resources together and created an, an organization called the Upper Big Branch Family Fund, which later became Remember the Miners, um, and worked with a lot of folks around around West Virginia to, to make that happen. So. I really became interested in the ability of individuals to fill the gap between what the private sector can produce and what and what um, the government can provide. And that's where nonprofits come in. So and I've been on loosely along that same you know career path of nonprofit leadership, of marketing. and and now in the healthcare space, which is really a, a shifting, dynamic of our not only our economy but a sector of our everyday 
lives and, and, and the future of our society. Sure. So, so your involvement in what became Remember the Miners, was that your first foray into the nonprofit world? Had you any experience previous other than obviously your work with the university? Was that your first time working for or with a true nonprofit? It was. Yeah. Well, I mean, other than in the volunteer capacity, but yeah. you know, we, we, um, but I, but that was the first time where I was, you know, involved in starting something, creating something. And that actually kicked my career off, um, which I didn't anticipate. And two, the other thing I would I, I would say is, you know, I think people sometimes get too structured. I mean, structure is a great thing and an important component of our lives. But people get too focused on, well, I've got to do this and then I've got to get this degree and then I've got to get this job yeah. and that job and this job. And I think if you do that, you're really limiting yourselves. And that's counterintuitive to what most young people think, what I thought yeah. when I was in college. But you have to be open to opportunities. You have to be willing to take risks. You have to, you know, play the hand you're dealt, so to speak, and take things as they come and analyze opportunities and not be so narrow sided. You know, oftentimes we focus that hyper focus or we associate hyper-focus with ambition and with success. But I actually think it's the opposite of that. I think it's having a broad view. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's good to have goals. It's good to know what you want, but be flexible in how you're going to get there because life will surprise you as it sounds it has for you on, on many occasions. Yeah. So um, you're you're working on really what is a startup, a nonprofit. Um, tell us a little bit about how that unfolds and, and where you where you go from there. Well, so that unfolded in terms of, you know, we were able to really be on the forefront of responding to what was a disaster that affected my community and my state. And I thought as a student leader at the university, I had an opportunity to get involved and try to help. So it was a very organic process. I didn't really set out to do it. We just wanted to do something to be helpful. Yep. And that actually led to, I met a, a gentleman who also was very instrumental in starting that named Eric Mundell, who ran a mm -hmm. company called Brightline in Alexandria, Virginia, that was doing marketing work to support mm -hmm. what we were doing with um, Remember the Miners. So we began working closely together, and then I came to work ultimately in the D.C. area for Brightline on, on calls marketing. How do we align public corporations, big organizations for profit with what their public good utility is going to be? And how do we market that? And that was really fascinating work. And that began my entry into you know, where I ultimately have ended up. And then I, you know, ran a nonprofit for a while, community-based nonprofit. And I moved back to West Virginia um, after a, a loss in my family for a little while and worked in government. And then I, and then I, I came back and, and this sector of healthcare that I found myself in is really fascinating because it's a, it's a, it's a big growing segment of our healthcare industry. You're sure. still in nonprofit space, but you know, you're able to tackle big problems. Sure. Sure. Well, let's talk about that sector and, and your 20,000 foot view of, of healthcare and healthcare marketing as it stands in 2023. I have this much experience in that world. I worked for a healthcare system for about five years, but um, I, I am by no means an expert. So I'm interested in your perspective 
on the industry you're in. If you can talk a little bit about the work you do broadly and, and how you look at it from a marketer's perspective. Well, so taking care of the very sick is a age old uh, situation that humanity has faced. And it's always been people before the advent of modern medicine taking care of those who were terribly ill or at the end of their life and their family and their community. It really didn't become what we call hospice care, an organized system of care in the United States until the late 1970s, early 1980s. And it was in response to, at that time, mostly folks in the practice of oncology working in hospitals, seeing mostly at that time cancer patients dealing with really terrible um, consequences of that disease as it progressed and thinking there has to be a better way. Mm-hmm. So there was a, 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 a nurse in England named Cicely Saunders who created this concept of hospice and meaning that we have to focus on beyond beyond the cure for the disease, but really addressing the symptoms that associate with the disease and quality of life for people to be with their families. And so that came across the pond, so to speak, and became really organized in by nurses. Our founder was a nurse at the hospital in Winchester, Virginia, a wonderful woman named Helen Zabarth. And folks like Helen and were really pioneers 40, 45 years ago and saying there's got to be a better way. And it was volunteer driven. It was folks organizing themselves in their church or at the hospital or the auxiliary of the hospital or oncology practices. And then it really, a milestone occurred in 1982 when Congress passed a hospice benefit into the provisions of Medicare, where it's a fully covered benefit of Medicare. And about 90% of our patients at our organization, Blue Ridge Hospice, now known as Blue Ridge Care, in Virginia is about 90%. So that was really revolutionary. This is a fully covered benefit by Medicare. And interestingly, it was one of the few social services um, uh, pieces of legislation, new social spending program initiated in the Reagan administration because it was proven to be able to also save the system money. Yeah, and also so it was looked at as an investment more than an expense. Absolutely. And also yep. providing higher quality of care. Yep. So anyway, as as 40 years goes on and the aging tsunami that's taking place now and the concept of aging itself is a longer process. Yep. Um, somebody said, you know, dying is a chronic condition. So we really think about it differently. It's not just for the very end of life and it's not just this sort of, you know, depressing, you know, set of work. It's really a robust healthcare sector, and we're really becoming, as a lot of our peer organizations are, really comprehensive care providers for the aging and for those living with serious illness, um, well beyond the normal, um, you know, confines of what people think hospice care is, because people think oftentimes you sort of have one foot in the grave when you enter hospice, and that's not the way it was intended, nor the way it's got to be. Sure. So it's a fairly new concept in the grand scheme of things. How much time do you need to spend educating people about what hospice is versus promoting your organization as a known quantity? Are you spending a lot of time still explaining what hospice is? Is that still a necessity or do people get it and now it's about differentiating your organization? 
That's a great question. It's both, but it's mm-hmm. mostly explaining what it is. And, yeah. and unfortunately, that word has so ingratiated itself into the collective conscious of the public that they think, you know, it's it's a it's a constant, you know, upstream swim to get yeah. people to understand that this is not just for the very end, but there are, but, but so there are ways that you do that from a marketing perspective. One is you have to understand the strategic implications of what the organization, the, the healthcare, that sector of the healthcare is trying to accomplish. And that is really get rid of the fragmented system of care that often accompanies aging or often accompanies a serious illness, even if it's not a terminal illness. So how do we provide the broad continuum and how do we make it not fragmented for patients and their families? So we start by communicating that and what the benefits are. And then and oftentimes, you know, your audience will say, wait a minute, that, that, that's, that's what hospice care is. So I think you have to start with what the modern day strategic initiatives are for how you structure the organization to really meet the needs and a broader shifting healthcare landscape. Um, and then you can start talking more pointedly about the, the the position of your organization in that market or with those consumers, those healthcare consumers. But, you know, they're always saying every hospice marketer will tell you there's always what we call them the great myths. And the great myths are that it's, you know, you've got to have one foot in the grave. The great myths are it's a place you go where in 95 percent of care is delivered wherever somebody calls home. Um, and it, and there's a myth amongst some folks that it's it's a it's a luxury, and when it's covered by Medicare, and it's totally 100% covered. And also because of that, oftentimes folks who have the who have the ability to pay for high out-of-pocket private duty care think that what is actually a very sophisticated system of care is just for the poor and is below their standards. So you also have that. So there's a lot of challenges to face, but the rewarding part is in telling the the great difference that it makes in, in people's lives. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, it sounds like you have plenty to do yeah. <laughs> in explaining what, what hospice really is. Uh, within that, how do you differentiate Blue Ridge Care? What do you believe makes the organization stand out? What do you as a marketer try to focus on to help um, patients and their families see your organization as a great choice? That's a, well, I really appreciate that question because it is really an amazing organization. I've worked in two large um, uh, hospice providers, and I've also worked in consulting around the field. And Blue Ridge is a very unique organization, one by the community that it serves. It's a very close-knit, tight community, even as we're now expanding further into the suburbs of DC and in Northern Virginia, there's a certain resonance that our longevity in the community and our commitment to quality, which is really the key part of the answer to that question is we're a high quality care provider. And every family and that comes through our service is asked to participate in a Medicare survey. Mm-hmm. And we consistently rank as rated by patients and families, the highest quality care provider in Virginia and among the highest in the nation. And the one we're most proud of is over nine out of 10 patients and families say they'd be willing to recommend our organization to another patient or family facing that very intense personal 
and monumental time in the life of one of their loved ones. And that's something we're very, very proud of. So we're focused on providing high quality care, which is, even though it's not curative care, it is very research-driven, innovative care, innovative ways of looking at addressing the person, not just their physical being, but their spiritual, emotional, their their social determinants of health. So those things are really what we lean into is we're high-quality care provider. And also that we are a member of the community and a committed member to the community. So those those are the parts I would say. And then also, too, related to that and your previous question is making sure not only do people understand that this system of care is not only designed for people who are, you know, at the very, very end of life, but also a very sophisticated, research-driven, innovative function of our healthcare system. Because it has evolved in such a way where it's, it's um, you know, become really how do we address very complex symptoms? You know, sometimes diseases, even if they're, you're going to live with them for a long time, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, the symptomology itself beyond the disease, which is another, another word for that people often hear is palliative care or comfort care which we also provide, is really, you know, you, have, you can have a doctor treating your illness, but who's going to help care for the symptoms and address the symptomology, which can have a greater impact, ultimately can drive the negative impact on your quality of life more than any, anything else. So how do we talk about that in a way that conveys its, um, it, it, its, its sense of not only responsibility, as a as a very complex sector of healthcare, but also the fact that it's much more innovative than it was even five, 10 years ago. Yeah, well, it sounds like with the quality outcomes, you have a great story to tell. Um, yeah. What what are some of the specific things right and now? Asher helps some... us tell that story too. Well, that's great. Thanks for that little plug. I'm sure <laughs> Mike will appreciate that. Um, what, what are some of the things that you're spending time on that are taking up a lot of your time, a lot of your headspace at the top of your to-do list, things that, um, maybe they're complex, maybe they're challenging, maybe they're exciting. What, what's the, the big rocks you're trying to move right now? Well, that's a great question. And so my career has continued to take on, um, you know, different turns as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And so, you know, I started, you know, and at my core, I'm a marketer. I'm a storyteller. I am someone who tries to figure out how to solve problems and and position things from the vantage point of you know different different constituencies or audiences. But as I've also liked, I'm, I like to learn and I like to know things and I like to be a part of the big picture. And I've learned a lot in about not only marketing in hospice care, but about strategy in the broader healthcare system. So in the last, I joined Blue Ridge a year and three months ago, and in the last two months, I've taken on this role of chief strategy officer, which means that I help lead our marketing and communications philanthropy functions, but also the strategies for how we play in a shifting healthcare system, which is increasingly taking up more and more of my time, my headspace. And that is, and, and, and what's driving that ultimately, and you always hear if you turn on any television program, if you've been alive and in in paying attention to the news at any point in the last 20 years, you've heard, yeah. oh my goodness, Medicare is going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And so Congress is always grappling with how to fund Medicare, which is not only one of the biggest social services programs in our society, but also 
thank goodness, most people who get seriously ill are 65 and older. Yep. And most of them are Medicare beneficiaries. So that's 90 percent. That's 90 percent of our insurance base is Medicare. And also Medicare drives the bus, so to speak, and what's happening across the landscape of healthcare plans and payers, what we call payers in the system. So that has been really a, a fundamental shift that's we're right in the midst of, not only in our field, but all across healthcare. Well, and sure. it's premised on improving quality and reducing the cost of the cost to do that. And it's called value-based care mm-hmm. is, is the nomenclature that, that um, policymakers use. And what that really means is how do we, instead of you know, coordinate care, how do we, across the different organizations that exist caring for this patient, how do we make certain that we're not duplicating efforts? How do we focus on moving things upstream? How do we focus on what really matters to them and what their values and what their goals for care are? And how do we do all of that with less money? Mm-hmm. So that's really you know, been an interesting shift. And what's driving it really is hospitals, because we have 5,000 hospitals in the United States out of $4 trillion in healthcare spending. They occupy about three-fourths of that, between two-thirds and three-fourths. Also, you know, so doctors, physicians are a trillion dollars of healthcare spending, but there are a million doctors in the United States, roughly. So I always joke and say hospice care is only a $250 billion <laughs> sector of our, yeah. of our healthcare economy. But it's also one that has high needs patients and yep. complex patients. Mm-hmm. So how, how we're going to exist in the value-based healthcare world is something that's a fascinating question. Anybody listening to this who, who works in healthcare has probably heard something about value-based or heard something about how we're going to how we're going to lead that shift. So to get to the point of, of, of your question, what we're doing is creating additional service lines, for example, that enable us to broaden the continuum. We're starting a program called, which is a federal program funded by Medicare and Medicaid joint program called PACE, which is the program for all-inclusive care for the elderly. Mm-hmm. And that provides for individuals who are certified to for placement in a nursing home, age 55 and older, have Medicare and Medicaid, we provide that level of care in in the home setting. So we say they remain safe in the community and happy at home. And we have an adult daycare center that we're building that we transport the participants in the program to provide clinic care, healthcare, coordinate all of their healthcare. And that is a really unique model because it's enabling us to leverage our core skill, which is providing complex care in people's homes, while also broadening the continuum and focusing on more upstream care. Um, so that, that that's one example of, of what we're doing you know, practically um, to help to help exist in that changing world. There's all sorts of other fascinating things going on with ACOs, which are accountable care organizations. Um, which are uh, providers working together to um, to reduce the what we call the total cost of care for Medicare beneficiaries. I won't bore everybody with all of that, but that's another fascinating thing that's taken place. That's a big shift, and also Medicare Advantage plans are very popular. Um, we have more people in the United States enrolled now in a Medicare Advantage plan than traditional Medicare, and that's that's an interesting, you know, because now you're negotiating with the um, 
the the healthcare companies that manage those plans. So you know there, there's a, there's been a, a big shift, and consumers like Medicare Advantage, mm-hmm. um, which was the which was the uh, and there's a bipartisan support around that because because consumers like the um, like the Medicare Advantage plan. So you know this intersection of health insurance plans, healthcare providers like ours, and the need to focus on people's own values. It are really and how you and how all and how providers are paid for that. It used to be you have a broken arm, you go to the doctor and then they bill for a broken arm. Yeah. Now they're saying you have X amount of money per month to care for Jason. So if you care for him, so if you have five thousand dollars a month theoretically, you care for him for four thousand, then you make a thousand. Six thousand, you lose a thousand. Yep. used to be you just build what they call fee for service. And so that's been a big shift. So healthcare is changing. Um, and the other driver that lastly I'll say is the high healthcare costs impede our ability to compete in a global marketplace. There's a great Wall Street Journal article called about Ford Motor Company, HMO on wheels because their healthcare costs were so exorbitant they couldn't compete with foreign car manufacturers. And the United States spends more on healthcare with poor outcomes some of our top competitors. So huge systemic changes occurring in healthcare. They're fascinating to have a small part of. Yeah. Yeah. So small problems you're working on, little, yeah. little things, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, I heard it said not too long ago and it, it probably should have struck me sooner than, than when I heard it. But, you know, someone said we used to be a manufacturing economy. Then we were a knowledge economy. Now we're a healthcare economy because it is such a large portion of the economy itself, the workforce. Um, it drives workplace decisions. It can be something that you know will prevent someone from starting their own business if they aren't going to have you know a clear path to health insurance. So it really affects so much that happens in other industries while also being such a large industry into unto itself. Right. It's it's daunting to me and I'm glad there's smart people like you working on the problems <laughs> because I, I I left healthcare marketing a long time ago and I think healthcare marketing was glad to see me go. So I'm glad that, <laughs> that you're on it. Um, well, let, well let's pivot yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that just lastly, you're so, such an important point because healthcare is a growing sector of our economy, and and there are really interesting reasons for that. But also, yeah, I mean, to the point about you know the point I made about the car company and HMO on wheels, healthcare costs are so exorbitant as choking off the ability of 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 businesses to thrive in some cases get started. So we've got to grapple with that while also improving quality. And but 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 for all the challenges, there's never been a more fascinating time in healthcare and biomedical sciences, and and what we've been able to see in terms of the ability to treat illnesses and not only treat illnesses but treat symptoms of illnesses, as I was talking about earlier, and what we're learning and and the advancement of healthcare and biosciences is amazing. And if you can trace it back to really the sequencing of the human genome 20 years ago, and we're just getting into um, you know all of the amazing things that that's going to achieve for society and for humanity. So the challenges are daunting, but also on the other side of that coin the opportunities are are really boundless too. 
Well, and one of the things that fascinates me about your work is you have the economic piece, you have the, the science piece, and then you've got the values piece, as you mentioned. You're dealing with people making end-of-life or near-end-of-life decisions, and they're factoring in belief systems, they're factoring in cultural background. So as if you didn't have enough to do with all the other facets, you're also dealing with something that's a very personal choice and a very individualized choice. So, you know, as as healthcare providers, maybe not for you as a marketer as much, but it's really individualizing the experience in a way that works given someone's background and beliefs. And that's, that's in itself a daunting task. Absolutely. Well said. You still got a little bit of that healthcare marketer in you. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm going to move on before I get out of my depth. Yeah, have that's exactly quickly. right. No, but you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pivot to a few more quick hit questions. And the first one I want to ask you is related to career path. What's your best advice when it comes to building a successful or fulfilling career? If you could pass along some advice, maybe to someone who's listening to this, who's younger, who's thinking of a career change, what's most important from your perspective about being happy and successful in your career? Well, I think, well, I think to start to initiate your career, just to reemphasize what we talked about a little while ago, that you have to take, you have to be, see a pathway forward and wanting to advance your career in a way that, that, that makes you feel fulfilled. But you have to take a broad view, not a narrow view. And I think oftentimes when you're young, the conventional wisdom is you've got to take a very hyper-focused, narrow view when you need to take a more wide view and be more open and willing to take risks and 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 explore things. You know, when you're young, you can you can, you know, you think about when you want to go backpacking across Europe or you're going to take the summer off and go do something crazy. Also, think about you can you have the opportunity to try things and experiment and be open and see what. See, see how broad your interests really run, you know, because marketing can be ap- applicable in any scenario virtually that exists in the job place. The other piece of advice, and it sounds cliche to say it, but that you've everybody's this is no, but this is not a revolutionary statement, but the old saying, if you find something that you love to do, it doesn't feel like work. Mm-hmm. And that's that is a well-known statement for a reason. I think it's very, very important to align what fulfills you and to put yourself in a position that you really enjoy what you're doing. I always joke, you know, there are elderly members of my uh, family, you know, from a, this is not a generational comment, but I, they just happen to be of that age group. Say, oh, you know, you ought to do something in IT because you know they read somewhere, feel somewhere. That's the latest, greatest thing. Yeah. And don't follow that advice. Would be my yeah. other piece of advice. Follow what's best for you and what your interests and passions are, not what other people think is the latest, greatest thing. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say, I know this is supposed to be a short answer, but the last thing okay. we talked we talked about in the in the last question about the cultural, you know, choice making and personalized nature of different functions of values in healthcare. I think being I think that is also an important um, thing to cultivate in yourself as you're beginning your career is we're working with with uh, in a more interdependent world than ever before and how to work with and and appreciate and value other people who aren't like you and how to communicate to them how to how to develop within your studies a sense of cultural competency um, I think is a very important skill set for marketers today. So kind of three-part answer to your one-part question, but I thought all three points were equally important. 
Hey, that's great. And it was all, all given to me at the same price. So I appreciate that. Thanks. Three for one. one. All right. Um, the second uh, question has to do with your industry, the company you work for. And there's plenty, plenty of fodder here. But what's a myth or misconception you want to clear up or something you think that's underappreciated that you'd like to amplify? Well, without a question that that traditional hospice care, as we know it, and again, that itself is changing, um, is not just for people who are at the very, very end. And the number one feedback we get from patients and families is, I wish we would have called you sooner. Mm-hmm. And things seem to have settled down. When we come, when, when our organization or one like ours gets involved with a patient and their family, because the family and their friends, their care system is also a very important part of what we address and people we help support, things seem to have settled down. You know, mm-hmm. mom or dad are not in and out of the hospital all the time once yeah. you once you all got on the scene. So, and, and you don't have to have a physician referral. Anybody can make a referral to hospice. And it's so you pick up the phone. It's never too early. And people to, to see if you're eligible and people uh, not, I think, is for the last days of life. And one of the things I'm very grateful for is that President Carter had the courage to talk about entering hospice care. Mm-hmm. And one, the fact that the former president did that and did it publicly was great um, in terms of public awareness for our field. It was inspiring to see the courage that it takes to do that in such a public way and to and to understand where you are in your life's journey. But also now that he has been in hospice care for several months, that in and of itself demonstrates to the public. There's a lot of people out there thinking, my goodness, Jimmy Carter has been in hospice care for this long. And, and yeah. so it's really done a great service. So. That's the other thing I wish not the, the, the not only the public knew, but more people would help the public know that yeah. by having the courage to tell their own story. Well, that's a that's a fantastic example. And it, and it also speaks to the problem, because when it was announced he was going into hospice care, the next thing you saw was almost the eulogies being published. Right. right. Um, in a sense that it was imminent that he would pass away. So I think that is a is a teachable moment for people to say, all right, let me reframe what this is. And I think that's true, you know, for the rest of us as well. You hear someone go is going into hospice and your immediate thought is, okay, it's only a matter of time. Um, it's, it's, I think, critical to educate people that's not necessarily the case, primarily so that families can have conversations that aren't confrontational, that are helpful about putting someone into hospice care, not as a last resort, but as the best way for them to make it through their, you know, right. their last, um, the last part of their life. Right. And it's not giving up. And and people still, you know, and it's sort of this catch-22 where people do wait until the last moment in it. And, and you know, you see people, oh, they've entered hospice and, you know, it's the end. And, so, and too often it is because people and when i say people i mean families also mean other physicians providers who want to do absolutely everything they can to 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 cure a disease um that they do become involved with hospice care too late but also though there's still even for people who have a terminal illness even for people like president carter who are you know 95 years old 100 years old um, one of my favorite stories is a 102-year-old during COVID 
um, that was in a nursing home and, and had COVID and came into our care and got better and did what we call graduate from hospice, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. But people, they get enrolled early enough. You know, Duke University has a great center for end-of-life care that really studies these things. And people sometimes end up living longer and certainly living better. Um, you know, even at the people 95 years old still have a bucket list. They have things they want to get done. And it may not be, you know, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, but what it can be is I want to go fishing. I want to go to the I want to go to the beach one more time. I want to be around for my daughter's wedding. I want to see my grandchild graduate college. And we want to help them get those bucket lists done because even with a finite amount of time, which on some level we all have, people still have things they want to get done and we want to help them do that and focus on living instead of focusing on 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 the fact that you know they have a serious illness. Um, so that and one of my favorite ways to do that, I'll just have to share this story. I call it the story of the second visit. And we were talking earlier about when I came and moved from West Virginia to Washington, D.C., um, in working in calls marketing, I had met some folks also from West Virginia who worked in hospice care. And I thought like everybody else, oh, my God, this is doom and gloom. And just the, yeah. this has got to be the most depressing work. And and they said, we well, ought to go out with one of our nurses on a home visit. So I did that. And I'll never forget her name was Nancy, the nurse's name. And we went out and it was a rainy, gloomy day. And we knocked on the door and went in and, you know, they started, she was on a, this patient was on a whole bunch of medicine, 90 some year old woman lying in bed. Just, you could tell she was miserable. And, and, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is everything I thought, you know, she can't get out of bed. And, this is just as depressing as they say it was. And so that kind of stuck with me. And then I was talking and working with this group some more on some marketing things. And I ran into that nurse, Nancy, and I said, oh, my goodness, that just really stuck with me. I don't know how I don't know how you do that, which people say to our clinicians all the time. And she said, we ought to come back with me on another visit. And literally that day we went to that same house. And this lady lived in a, in a, in a little house um, in northern Virginia that she had lived in for 70 years. And this day, it was cloudy and rainy the first day. This day, literally, the sun was shining. It was in the late fall. And the, it was a nice breeze. And I remember the front door was open, and she had this screen door. And we walk in, and there's a volunteer from hospice giving this lady a perm sitting up in her kitchen. She's got literally baking cookies and talking about her grandkids or great grandkids coming for the holidays. And we had gotten involved with her and started focusing on what matters to you. And she cut back, you know, she was on all these medications. You know, this 95 year old woman in hospice doesn't need all these medications, for example, part of her care plan, value based. So, I tell people that, and there's, I can tell a lot more to that, both of those visits and that story. But, and I tell people that, you know, everybody thinks, I thought that what hospice care is about is what I saw and what I felt on that first visit. Mm-hmm. But what it's really about is what I saw and what I experienced on that second visit, because we had been involved with her and she was very much focused on living the life she had left instead of being uh, miserable and anguished in, in the disease and aging that was taking place. 
Yeah, that's great. I love how you bridge that. And I think stories like that are ultimately what will slowly over time, unfortunately, change those myths and misconceptions. But certainly that's what people need to hear. Great story. All right. Um, the last one is maybe easier. Uh, I'm going to ask you about the work you do as a marketer to think about a tip, a trick, a tool, a hack, something you use, maybe not every day, but frequently that really helps you be efficient, be effective. You know, marketers are looking for ways to get the job done, smarter, not harder in 2023. What's something you recommend that might help them do that? Well, that's a, that's a simple question, but a, a, a complex question. Um, I think how we manage our, allocate our time. Um, you know, if you're a marketer, you're creative, don't get bogged down in a meeting just to have a meeting. Mm-hmm. One hack I have is I don't do meetings just to do a meeting and yep. I try not to. Yep. And somebody's there and you take notes and then talk about when you're meeting again. I want to have a meeting <laughs> and, and so dedicate time to creativity. Yeah. Um, carve out time to think and to brainstorm and to talk to your creative colleagues. I think that, you know, taking the time in our fast paced world to need to respond to this, to respond to that and be more strategic, particularly for marketers that work within an organization. I think that's very important because, you know, you, if you're starting out in your career and, and you're a, an entry level marketing person and your responsibility to, to some of the people in the organizations, particularly those from a previous generation are just to post things on social media and oh, can you, you know, you take the time to think about and, and demonstrate your worth and value by being more strategic. You know, as our right audience for this, think through things, would it be on LinkedIn or would it be on Facebook? Would it be on, on, on Instagram or TikTok, and then think about how you're going to communicate to the audience. So methodology, particularly early in your career, being strategic, taking time to be creative, um, I think is is very important. I carve out time in my calendar every day for those types of things, to be impromptu and call up a colleague to brainstorm on something. So I think in a nutshell, that would be my best. There's a lot of hacks out there, but that's that's yeah. the one that I find useful. Well, and the hacks aren't worth much if you're not coming up with good strategic ideas. You know, related to what you're saying, this is another cliche, but it's worth repeating, is that some of the best ideas come when you get away from the day-to-day grind and you go do something that's a context switch and all of a sudden, problem you've been trying to solve kind of solves itself. So I really like that advice. And if boiled into a nutshell, don't go to a meeting just to go to a meeting. Make sure you know why you're there. And if you can free up that time to think more creatively and strategically, that's probably a better use of it. Well, um, Jason, this has been great. Really appreciate the work that you and your organization do. I know it's challenging work. Um, The industry itself is challenging and you're in one of the more challenging facets of it, but really appreciate that work. Appreciate you working with Asher and appreciate your time here today. Thank you very much. And we we love working with Asher and, and you all have been a great partner for us. That's another good hack, hire Asher. All right. Well, we're going to close <laughs> on that note. That's awesome. Well, thanks for thanks for everything you do. And thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It was great to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Asher Marketing Podcast. The Asher Marketing Podcast is a production of Asher Agency, your full service partner for marketing, advertising and public relations. We'll be back next time with another great guest. And we hope you'll join us then.